Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. It's Friday, February 6th, 2015, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. And I'm Kishore Hari. Each week, we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show, on Facebook at Slash Inquiring Minds Podcast, and you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. This episode is sponsored by The Great Courses. The Great Courses brings the world's greatest professors to your fingertips. With over 500 courses on science, history, philosophy, fine arts, and more, The Great Courses are available on digital download and streaming or DVD and CD. Best of all, you can listen to or watch The Great Courses at your own pace without the pressure of homework or exams. And now for a limited time only, The Great Courses is giving our listeners an offer of 80% off the original price of The Science of Mindfulness, a research-based path to well-being. Go to thegreatcourses.com slash inquiringminds to find out more. That's thegreatcourses.com slash inquiringminds. Indre, this week I'm going to take you on a journey to Mars and back and back again. What? (laughs) Andy Weir is the author of The Martian, which is a science fiction story that blends an incredible amount of scientific accuracy into a narrative about an astronaut getting stranded on Mars. It's a traditional dramatic story of a hero being stranded, but it was the science that gives it a lot of realism. Our hero suffers through a number of trials and tribulations, and his struggle to survive unites the planet. And even though it's cheaper to send robots into space, Andy and I talked about how fundamental it was for humans to wander and explore. Let's listen. Human beings have an inherent desire to go wander around and look at stuff. I mean, so (laughs) there are people who live like, you know, at the base camp of Everest. There are people who live out in the out in the woods in the middle of Alaska. And there people will go wherever they kind of feel like going. All they need is access to it. Eventually, our technology will reach the point where it's where it doesn't cost that much to go into space, where you could go to the moon for a million bucks or something like that. And we will either invent this technology in the short term specifically to encourage space travel, or we will accidentally invent it in the long term while working on other things. So, Indre, do you think it's important for humans to go to Mars? Ah, that's a that's a really interesting question. I mean, I think there are a lot of things on Earth that, you know, require our resources and are a good use of our money. But I do agree with this notion that, you know, we there is something fundamental in our character that wants to wander out and see our surroundings. And, you know, we don't really know how a trip to Mars might affect the what we can do on this planet. So if I see it as as a way in which we can develop technologies that can improve our lives here on Earth. And, you know, going to Mars is that carrot that the engineers need to work on solving some of these problems, then I'm all for it. But I'm also, you know, cognizant of the fact that we have a lot of problems right here at home that we still need to solve. For the longest time, I was largely against sending a human to Mars, mostly because it's not economically feasible at this point. The technology is not there. And it was driven purely from an emotional standpoint. But I have to say, reading this uh, this book and talking to Andy started to convince me to go the other side. And I wonder if this idea of science fiction that tells these incredibly fantastic tales can actually encourage the population to get more behind a manned mission than uh, than we were uh, previously. Do you think that's a role sci-fi can play? I mean, not only sci-fi, but I also think, you know, it, it draws attention to science and technology in ways that almost nothing else does. You know, people, I, I want to hear about the man or the woman that goes to Mars. You know, the rover that goes to Mars, it's kind of exciting, but I have to say I get more excited about the reaction of other people to those um, unmanned missions than I do to the mission itself. Uh, and so... You know, I would be much more interested in watching, you know, some kind of data or whatever feedback 
coming from a person going to Mars. Um, so I think it would engage the public in a way that nothing else would. I also have a friend, Marsha Ivins, who was actually the first interview of Inquiring Minds, and she's an astronaut and a retired astronaut now. And, you know, she would go to Mars in a heartbeat. And I've had these conversations with her. And so there are people out there who know it's a one-way trip. And yet for them, it's something that they would do you know, if it was available to them immediately. There's no way you'd catch me dead on Mars. There's no <laughs> chance that I'm going to Mars. I'm I'm just not cut out of that, that brave, courageous cloth that I think, that explorer cloth, if you will, that I think make astronauts who they are. What if there's a really good craft beer on Mars? <laughs> I'm, I can almost assure you, I haven't looked at the latest data from the rovers, but I can almost assure you there isn't one. <laughs> All right, well, we'll leave it to someone else then to do. So I want to talk about some science in the news this week. But before we do that, I have a mea culpa. So I made a mistake a couple weeks ago on one of our podcasts, the one Kishore, where we were talking about what the public knows about food. So we had this discussion about, you know, that there was a survey and people talked about whether people were asked whether they want DNA in their food, right? We kind of laughed about it. And I said that sometimes there are t- there are warnings on food uh, things that seem ridiculous to me. And the, the warning that I mentioned was that it seemed odd to me that sometimes licorice says that it's gluten-free, Well, I was completely wrong. It turns out licorice is largely made of wheat. So for those people who have celiac disease, please don't go out and eat licorice without checking first that it is made with a different uh, product instead of wheat. Instead, what I meant was that there are some times when I've seen on licorice packets that they're fat-free. And of course, that's a little bit ridiculous, since I don't think there is any licorice that actually contains fat. So I apologize uh, for saying that it was gluten-free, but really what I meant was that it's labeled as fat-free. So I apologize for that mistake. And now let's get on to the science and the news. So one of the things that caught my eye is a new website that I think is really cool. And you know how there are fact-checking websites that fact-check essentially what politicians say in terms of whether or not they're actually saying the right things? There's now a version sponsored by the Annenberg Public Policy Center called SciCheck. So it's a, it's a nonpartisan think tank at the University of Pennsylvania, and it's essentially a website that checks the science behind what politicians and other people say. And I think they're doing it largely because there's an important election coming up in 2016, you may have heard what? of. Uh, and what they're trying to do is really have um, the science claims that uh, politicians spout out on the, uh, on the trail really be fundamentally checked with research from the scientific community. This week has had a lot of conversation about vaccines and some inane things being said by certain politicians on vaccines. Um, but uh, what caught my eye was a uh, was a side check on the Human Genome Project, mm-hmm. uh, and w- what it was is the president this week announced a new precision medicine initiative, and it, during his announcement he mentioned the Human Genome Project, which is this huge investment the government made years ago to sequence all of the base pairs of DNA, and it cost. billion initially and and much more later. And he mentioned that the return on investment from each of those dollars that came in was $140 coming out to the benefit to the actual economy. And so fact check or side check took this on. What did they find? Uh, That $140 number came out of a, a report on the project in 2011. But economists take a look at this report and they said, wait a minute, they're including like salaries of the scientists involved as a benefit to the economy. And I don't know how salaries are calculated at uh, in, in government, but in most cases, it's considered a cost. And when they started to really take a look at how they calculated the overall cost for this project, they basically stopped costing the project at 2003 when it went on for many, many more years afterwards. So that same group issued a revised report two years later in 2013 that said the actual benefit when we include those increased costs was only $66 for the dollar invested. Now, Still, that's a huge return. That's I an mean- incredible return. <laughs> and uh, when you look at it, the cost of sequencing that first human genome was basically $100 million. And now we're down to less than $5,000 and on the pathway to $1,000. So the investment had huge returns in terms of scientific research and big returns to the economy. But for the president to go up there and issue a number that was double 
Yeah, no, I totally see where you're coming from. And I think this is exactly what's important. And, you know, ultimately, though, it's still, you know, the, the point that he was making is true, is that we actually, you know, generated more income than it cost, right? Um, and I think that that's really great to hear. And I think it's a good, you know, argument for why we should continue to invest in science. Um, but what I'm really excited about the, about the website is that, you know, there are so many times in which people can pull, you know, one tiny, uh, scientific study that, you know, might have showed an effect. And then, you know, there are, there are 12 that showed the opposite effect, right? And we don't have to talk about those 12. If we're a politician, we can just use the confirmation bias and cherry pick that one study and, and use that. And I think here, finally, they're going to get called out on that, um, on, on that way of doing things. So yeah, you can go to factcheck.org and then click on a link that will take you to SciCheck. And, uh, you know, please frequent that website frequently. I'm actually really excited for when they call people as having pants on fire. It'll be pants exuding an incredibly exothermic reaction. Uh, <laughs> so what else is going on? This week actually was the unveiling of the 2016 NASA budget. And this is a budget that the White House and NASA agree on. So it hasn't passed through Congress. So we shouldn't be too excited because this isn't the official number that's going to come out. And wait, in 2016, we're going to have a different president. So how does that fit in? I think the budget needs to be approved now. Whether or not it happens is a big question mark. But this essentially sets some uh, priorities up for future missions. So the notion of what this budget really represents isn't so much of a final figure, but where the money within that budget is being directed. And so the overall budget's at $18.5 billion, which is up $500 million from uh, from year 2015. And there's three important items that really came out of it. Is One, NASA is funding a mission to Europa, which is a moon of Jupiter. And the reason we want to go there is because uh, uh, previous exams uh, showed that uh, there is a huge amount of liquid water under the surface of this moon. And astrobiologists are incredibly excited about the prospect of there being potentially life in this water. Uh, And there's other moons. There's Enceladus, which is the moon of Saturn, uh, which also has water, but Jupiter's just a little bit closer than Saturn. And so NASA has sort of settled on this uh, Europa mission what it really represents to the scientific community is a shift back towards planetary science. For years, NASA has been cutting in planetary science. So I think there's a lot of uh, excitement there. And and there's this like, you know, kind of awesome idea that we might find microbial life out, you know, that's not on Earth. Just kind of amazing. Not just not on <laughs> Earth, but in our solar system. Yeah. I mean, most of the search for life has been uh, well outside of our solar system. Uh, or even, uh, riding around on comets. To, uh, to find it on a moon as close as Jupiter uh, seems fascinating. The other big news in the budget was Mars. And there's two pieces of that Mars budget. One is that the rover opportunity is dead. This rover has been on, been uh, chugging along on Mars for 10 years. It was only supposed to run for three, three months. And they are officially going to cut funding to it. So let's shed a tear for opportunity. Uh, but the exciting thing is they are continuing funding for the Orion mission and the SLS, which is essentially uh, uh, the project that's going to take a man to Mars. Uh, to or Mars a woman. Or a human <laughs> to Mars. Uh, and so the, Maybe or- Marcia. the Orion mission is essentially the spacecraft. And the SLS is sort of the launch mechanism to get that spacecraft out, um, out towards Mars. So it seems like Mars is becoming more and more a priority. Yeah, and you know, and I think it's pretty sexy for an incoming president to say, "Yeah, I'm going to fund this mission to Mars." You know, it's it's in some ways I can see that that's an easier budgetary, you know, thing to say yes to. Um, but, you know, it's still pretty amazing. And one of my favorite moments in space over the last 10 years was watching uh, uh, Curiosity land on Mars and seeing Mohawk guy and like the entire JPL staff go nuts in that room and how that blew up my entire social feed. So I'm excited at the prospect that this represents too. Now, all that being said, we need continued funding for this to actually become a reality. And there's yeah, a long and, way to go. And there's still, you know, the NASA budget has, con- has, you know, you mentioned there's a $500 million increase. But, you know, when you look at NASA budgets of, over the course of, you know, the last few decades, we're still seeing that the budget is, is a tiny fraction of what it really should be if we were, you know, making NASA a priority. Well, we're going to be talking even more about Mars uh, a little bit later on this show since we have Andy Weir talking about The Martian. And so in a moment, we'll take a short break and come back with uh, 
Kishore's interview with Andy Weir. But before we get there, I did want to put out a spoiler alert. So if you haven't read the book and you really want to, Kishore does talk to Andy about some of the plot details. Uh, Although I have to say, as a psychologist, that in 2012, there was a study that came out that's called Spoilers Don't Spoil Stories. And it showed pretty clearly that even if you know the ending, and even if the story is an ironic twist or a murder mystery of some sort, that knowing the ending doesn't necessarily spoil your pleasure in reading the story. In fact, in each of the cases of uh, in this particular study, people rated that they enjoyed the story more knowing the ending. Um, so you can choose to read the story before and then listen to the interview, or you can listen to the interview, and I don't think it'll diminish your um, enjoyment of the book itself. Though we should have issued a spoiler alert for that study. <laughs> We'll talk about it in another. We should have those guys on the show at some point anyway. So with that, let's take a short break and we'll be back with Kishore's interview with Andy Weir. It's already February. What are you waiting for? Invest in yourself this year and start learning something new at lynda.com with a free 10-day trial. lynda.com is used by millions of people around the world and has over 3,000 courses on topics like web development, photography, visual design and business, as well as software training like Excel, WordPress, and Photoshop. All of their courses are taught by experts, and new courses are added to the site every week. Whether you want to set new financial goals, find work-life balance, invest in a new hobby, ask your boss for a raise, find a new job, or improve upon your current job skills in 2015, lynda.com has something for everyone. Sign up for your free 10-day trial today by visiting lynda.com slash minds and you'll get unlimited access to every course on lynda.com as well as access to view tutorials on tablets and iphone plus android mobile devices and access to new courses added every week there are courses like getting things done business writing fundamentals small business secrets breaking out of a rut and foundations of photography invest in yourself and sign up for a free 10-day trial to lynda.com by visiting lynda.com slash minds. Learn something new in 2015. At Inquiring Minds, we are committed to lifelong learning, as I'm sure you listeners have enjoyed learning things, hopefully both on our show and elsewhere in your lives. And that's why we're fans of The Great Courses. The Great Courses is celebrating its 25th anniversary this year, and they offer engaging lectures by top professors who are experts in their fields. I recently watched The Science of Mindfulness, a research-based path to well-being by psychology professor Ronald D. Siegel of Harvard Medical School and the University of Massachusetts Medical School. Now, I have to say, I'm generally pretty skeptical when it comes to you know, notions that you can change your life by, you know, doing one thing or another. And meditation and mindfulness meditation in particular has gotten a lot of press recently in science. And I have to say that I'm starting to come around to the idea that there might be something to it. And in the science of mindfulness, Dr. Siegel really provides some interesting insights into how both ancient wisdom and traditions and the discoveries of modern science can help us better deal with everyday difficulties. So for a limited time, The Great Courses is giving a special offer to our listeners. Order The Science of Mindfulness, a research-based path to well-being, and get 80% off the original price. But this 80% savings is only available for a limited time, so don't wait. Go to thegreatcourses.com slash inquiringminds to take advantage of this special offer. That's thegreatcourses.com slash inquiringminds. Andy Weir, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Thanks for having me. Six days ago, astronaut Mark Watney became one of the first men to walk on Mars. Now he might be the first one to die there. And I love the first line of your book. Thanks. (laughs) I'm pretty much fucked. That's what Mark (laughs) Watney says uh, to sort of set it up. Can you take us into what's uh, into the premise of the book so we can um, dive into the science? Uh, Sure. The book is about an astronaut on the third manned mission to Mars. And uh, due to a sandstorm, he he gets injured in a sandstorm and his crew believes he's dead. And they had every reason to believe he was dead. And they have to abort or they risk getting stranded there themselves. Um, So they leave. They think he's dead. NASA thinks he's dead. Uh, His communication system is broken. So he has no way to tell people he's not dead. Now he's stranded on Mars and has to try to survive with just the equipment he has on hand. And... I was surprised when we started del- uh, delving into uh, his 
notion of survival, how much math and science that you actually uh, incorporate into this book that, that is legitimate math and science. Why was it so important to get it right and get it accurate? Well, uh, you know, I've been a sci-fi geek my whole life. I've always, I've always loved, you know, science fiction, and I've also been a science geek my whole life. And it always bugs me when I'm reading sci-fi, and there's some massive just oversight on physics, like when people, you know, I don't know, when I'm watching a TV show and people are in zero G because they're on the moon, or you know, <laughs> something like that. And so, I real, I it always sets off a flag to my nerdy little OCD brain that uh, that it, it just kind of ruins the the setting for me. So I wanted to make my sci-fi as accurate to real physics and science as possible. And the hero of this book is a botanist and an engineer, not your typical like captain of the ship like you find in most sci-fi uh, explorations. Why did you decide on uh, an engineer being your hero? Well, he pretty much has to be an engineer to. Uh, be able to um, deal with the problems that he ran into. Um, so are we uh, are we in the post-spoiler warning part now where we're just going to speak freely about everything? I think that's enough of a spoiler warning right there. All right. Well, okay. So he survives. And in order to make that like plausible, there's just a whole bunch of stuff he'd have to do. Now, realistically, anyone they sent to Mars would be pretty smart and pretty skilled at scientific uh, at the scientific side of things. So yeah, <laughs> I guess I guess anybody would have those skills, but uh, I I don't know. I guess I just uh, I I guess it comes back to uh, same thing all writers do. You imagine yourself in that situation, and that kind of blossoms into a main character. He's a lot like my personality, so I guess that's why he's a nerdy technical guy instead of you know Commander, you know Brock face punch. <laughs> <laughs> so you did model him after yourself a little bit because he is incredibly uh funny uh and offbeat he sends messages back to earth that i think are a little bit inappropriate let's just say <laughs> when he sends the message boobies back to earth that's broadcast <laughs> to the entire planet uh, how why did you decide to create a character that had so much humor in him beyond um the the science and engineering background well, okay, so first off, uh, w when I say he's like me, I just want to point out he's he's better than me in every way and doesn't <laughs> have my flaws. So, you know, I'm not I'm not saying that I'm like awesome. I'm I, he's kind of what I wish I was, right? Um which is pretty much any protagonist is someone the author wants to be or someone the author wants to screw. <laughs> That's my belief if you look at um but uh why did I make him give him that kind of smart ass personality? Well, there's a huge amount of exposition in the book. There's just like tons and tons of, okay, reader, sit back, and I'm going to explain to you how, you know, how the Sabatier process works for making fuel out of the Martian atmosphere. And I have to, I have to get all this information across, and I, I didn't want it to be like a Wikipedia article in the middle of the narrative. So I had to have a funny guy telling you about it, making jokes and putting things in a funny way so that you, you keep wanting to read and you keep wanting to see what he'll say next. And so that was kind of my solution to that problem. <laughs> uh, so let's get into some of the science. So one of the first problems that he faces is just basic needs, food, water, and shelter. And I was uh, really impressed when we talk about food first. Uh, there isn't, you know, fast food on Mars. So he has to come up with a way to feed himself. Uh, but the first thing you show is him thinking through his caloric intake needs. Uh, can you take us into some of the math you did around that? Well, sure. I, I don't have it in front of me right now, but the basic concept was he knows how many calories he needs to survive. He knows how many calories of food he has on the whole base, and he knows how long it's going to be until the next Mars mission comes, and those numbers don't add up. He's got... He's got enough food. If he if he cuts his rations down, he's got enough food to last, I think, about 400 days. And the next Mars mission won't be for about four years, so like 1,500 days or thereabouts, 1,400 days. And so he realizes pretty quickly he's going to need to grow his own food. Fortunately, he's a botanist, so he knows how to do that. <laughs> so which came first, like the plot point where you knew he had to be a farmer and then you turned him into a botanist or the other way around? Uh, the first one. I knew that he was going to need to farm food, so I made him a botanist to help explain why he does it so well. So he becomes a potato farmer, <laughs> uh, and he manages to create a soil. Um, 
Uh, talk a little bit about the soil, because I was fascinated about how you actually turn Martian dirt, which basically is, you know, uh, you know, iron laden talc part powder, basically, into actual usable soil. Right. Um, so I did a bunch of research on that. Oh, well, so I did a bunch of research on everything. <laughs> Every point of the book, you know, just tons and tons of Google searches. I didn't know anyone in aerospace, but it, it's easy to look up whatever you want online. Um, so this this concept of growing plants in Martian soil is is you know I didn't invent this. It's uh, a lot of people have been looking into it for a long time and doing simulations and emulations. Um, the main thing is, uh, well. The thing most people don't realize is the the dirt as a medium, its main purpose for a plant is to keep it in place. Like um, the plant gets certain nutrients from the dirt and that's important, the soil, and, and it also gets more importantly, a lot of bacteria working on the roots that are really important. And that's, of course, the method that it uses to soak up water and stuff. But, I mean, people do hydroponics and people even do aeroponics where the plants are just growing sort of on a, on a, on a lattice. And... Um, Plants get most of their mass by pulling uh, carbon and oxygen out of the air, or sorry, carbon dioxide out of the air and hydrogen and oxygen out of the water. And that's, so if you look at a tree, um, most of the mass of that tree came from CO2 that it absorbed from the atmosphere. It didn't pull it up out of the dirt which is why you can take a, a Dixie cup and grow an entire fern out of it, and the fern will, will weigh way more than the Dixie cup full of dirt did. And luckily for him, he had a CO2 generator in the uh, in the hab, which is what the uh, area that he was sort of uh, residing in on Mars was. Right. You know, m mainly being himself. Right. Well, what he had was an oxygenator. And uh, the, the purpose of the... Um, well, let's see. Okay. <laughs> so he himself is a CO2 generator, right? He exhales it. Um, also, Mars's atmosphere is almost entirely CO2, and they had a pump for capturing and storing that into a tank because of an unrelated sciencey thing on how they make their own rocket fuel on the surface. Let's actually talk about the rocket fuel because he uses rocket fuel to make water, which is uh, he uses something called hydrazine, which is a, a common rocket fuel. And I want to talk about how you essentially turn that into water. I'm a ex chemist, so I was. Uh, watching uh, you explain over four pages this chemical reaction <laughs> in exquisite detail. Uh, so l let's talk about hydrazine into water. Well, one of the main things hydrazine uh, does is if you, you run it over a catalyst, it releases a lot of hydrogen. Um, it also releases ammonia and a bunch of other crap, <laughs> right? Yeah, but and just for our listeners to note, hydrazine is basically N2H4, uh, and it's an ex uh, the bonds between the nitrogen contain a lot of energy when broken apart. It's great for uh, rocket fuel for that purpose. It's also great for killing yourself in a variety of ways. It's extremely dangerous stuff and highly toxic and, and just, just unpleasant all around. Um, the Germans used it in World War II as sort of a rocket jet fuel thing for one of their fighters. And they had a lot of accidents in dealing with it. They needed special trucks because they had like the hydrazine and then they had an oxidizer and if you just put these two things together it it burns like no ignition no nothing it's just boom i'm burning now so they had to make sure they had two very separate trucks that would come up to the plane at completely different times to fuel it up with the two parts and it's it's really nasty stuff however it's ideal for uh, things like landing on the moon, which is what they did use it for landing on the moon and launching from the moon, because whatever... Uh, it, oh, also, it should be pointed out, it's an environmental catastrophe. <laughs> it's just, it's absolutely horrible for, for, for the environment to, to use this stuff or have anything to do with it. But you don't really care what happens to the environment of the moon <laughs> or Mars. Yeah, the Mars environmentalists haven't <laughs> sort of formed into a group yet. Right. Uh, until, we, in, until we discover life on Mars, there's really nothing to protect there. But um, uh, so uh, it, the, the, the thing about hydrazine is it's a very compact, very highly energetic fuel. So you can use it to, to it's, it's great for space travel. Um, anyway, they had landed on Mars with the MDV, the Mars Descent Vehicle, and that had uh, fuel left over. They didn't use up every last ounce of their fuel. And um, when, they, uh, when they landed, they had, I, I think I said like they had like 600 liters of fuel left over or something like that. So that was just sitting in the tank in the MDV, and then Mark realized that he could use science and chemistry to turn the hydrazine into water. So what he did was he took apart the engine bell, 
so that he could get at the catalyst inside. And then he would just slowly run the hydrazine over the uh, catalyst to release the hydrogen. So that's half, hydrogen is half of the recipe for water. The other half is oxygen. And so to do that, um, he has, for reasons that we'll get into later, or uh, he has a, a thing that collects CO2 from the Martian atmosphere and puts it in a tank. And they needed that for this unrelated uh, chemistry that was going on elsewhere. And um, so he, he, could, he could get a nice, he could fill up every, every 10 hours or so, he could fill up, a, he, it would fill up a tank with pressurized carbon dioxide. So he would take that into the hab and just release it into the air. And of course, humans exhale carbon dioxide. So the hab has systems in place to turn carbon dioxide, to break carbon dioxide apart into carbon and oxygen. Um, that's so called, now he has everything he needs. He right. has hydrogen, he has, hydrogen he has oxygen. And oxygen, and he just uh, burn hydrogen, uh, just oxidize hydrogen, and you get water. And so, he so would, all, it was all not our a hero process to, for him. He, he did not do it yeah. well. <laughs> so all our hero had to do was burn the output of rocket fuel <laughs> yes. to generate water vapor and then condense it down back into water. It was brilliant because you actually explained the reaction and uh, explained sort of the timeline and didn't make it simple and easy uh, for him for sure. Uh, but the I I was reading through it and I was like, wow, this could actually work. Um, and, and I'm really curious, can it actually work? Did you actually do the the math about it? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I did all the math on the and the, and the chemistry. And by the way, I'm not great at chemistry. It's probably like my weakest science. I'm I'm all about the physics. Um, and so I had to do a bunch of research on this. And this is actually like this reaction is not that complicated. It's not. I mean, you're a chemist. You can you can confirm this. It's it's actually very simple. I mean, it's a it's, pretty simple reaction. But I I think it, just looking at it that I thought it would generate so much heat that uh, it might yes. heat up the environment too yes. much. So you're you're quite right. And I did get email from a chemist um, who said like, okay, so. Here's the reaction you did. Here, here's, the, here's the reaction you're doing. Um, here is the amount of hydrazine he reduced and, and water that he created. You know, so I, I provided that in the book. Also, in other places in the book, he had found out all the information you need to know about the volume of the hab, like the, the volume of the air in the hab, and he knows the pressure of it. And he's like, from that, I can calculate the increase in temperature that the hab atmosphere would have overall because there's a certain amount of energy released by the reactions and then you distribute that thermally across the you know across the air and he's like and the end result is the hab would heat up about 400 kelvins <laughs> during that time <laughs> which would roast him alive and I'm like, that okay. would be a little much <laughs> and it was too bad because the book had already released and and so i couldn't make any changes but if i'd known if I'd known that that I that I about that oversight, if I'd known that I'd messed that up, I could have easily solved it a number of ways. I could have said like, okay, he just does it slower over the course of many days, and lets the heat distribute. Like getting rid of excess heat on Mars is pretty easy. There's it's extremely because it's super cold, cold out, yeah, right. Super cold outside. Another so. thing he could have done if he was in a hurry, he could have brought a bunch of just rocks in from the surface so that. The heat capacity oh, to absorb the heat, yeah, yeah. The heat capacity of rock is really good. It would just just taking a big rock from the surface and bringing it into the hab. That alone would would soak up huge amounts of heat. And of course, you turn off the hab's own um, heaters. <laughs> so basically, you're heating the hab with hydrazine while you're doing this. So another key point in this book is basically Mark needs to get rescued, and they find. The way to, for him to get rescued is to take the vessel that he came in on, which still has astronauts on it, and send it back uh, to Mars to pick him up. Right. If you just will. so, just so we're clear that, um, just so the the listeners don't get confused, the various spacecraft involved. That one's called Hermes. That's a a very large ship that never lands. It it just goes back and forth between Earth and Mars. So, uh, and and to be even clearer, the astronaut he, he, Mark basically has an accident on Mars. And the rest of his team leaves without him, and they're taking Hermes to go back to Earth when they get the, uh, the message that he's basically alive. So you have to figure out how to get this spaceship back to Mars. Um, so how do, you, how do you send a spaceship back to Mars when it's on its way back to Earth? Well, um, it has to do with how the spaceship works. Hermes is an ion thrust drive uh, spacecraft, so it doesn't accelerate through a chemical propulsion rocket 
it accelerates by having um, basically a very large power generation uh, capability. Uh, specific, uh, Hermes has a nuclear reactor. And then it ionizes particles of, uh, of a gas, argon, I think is what I picked, but it doesn't matter what. It ionizes particles and then accelerates them at relativistic speeds out the back. Now, this all sounds like, you know, I'm talking about a Star Trek engine here, but this is a real thing. And they have made these ion engines and put them to use in space. So this is all real technology that exists. However, it doesn't exist at the levels of efficiency that I show in the book. <laughs> yes. But I think that if we you know, dedicated a lot of time and energy and resources to researching it, it could get up to that. But the other aspect of this, you can't just say, okay, point us back at Mars, like turn us around, turn on the ion mm -hmm. engines and let's right. go. You have to ca calculate orbital trajectories and use like assist. And you actually do this math. You actually generate... Uh, an understanding of how they need to get back to Mars accurately. Right. Um, so the, the ship accelerates very slowly. It accelerates at about uh, two millimeters per second per second, which means the thrust on that ship, if, you were, if it was stationary with respect to you, after one second of thrusting, it would be going one centimeter per second. Like that, that's its speed. It would just be slowly inching along. Wouldn't even be inching along. <laughs> um, so, however, when you just do that for months, you end up picking up quite a lot of velocity. And so um, working out a constantly accelerating trajectory from Earth's orbit to Mars's orbit is incredibly complicated. And the math was way beyond me. Like, I, I could not figure out how to do it. I mean, I can do it for a point thrust acceleration. I can figure out how to do an intercept like that. That's actually not that hard. But a constantly accelerating thing, I had no idea. So I did research and research and research and found out how NASA does it. And the way NASA works that stuff out is all purely through simulation. Because I think, I think it might turn out to be like there is no math for working it out. <laughs> like it might actually be like kind of like edging into the three-body problem kind of world. I, um, it's unclear. So uh, I, I could be wrong. Maybe, maybe I'm going to get deluged with uh, emails from mathematicians. But yeah, that sounds like that would be pretty cool. So that's win-win. Um, and so I had to work out a path. So what I did was I wrote my own simulation software um, to to basically try to help me work out um, course changes and adjustments. And a course change is just angling the ship a different direction so it thrusts a different way. And to figure out how to get it from Earth's orbit to Mars's orbit such that it intercepts Mars and is going the same velocity as Mars. I imagine you had to backfit once you sort of calculated the path, you had to backfit the plot to fit the timeline. Oh, Is absolutely. Right? No, everything was driven by those times. I had to backfit everything. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah. So since we're well past the spoiler chunk, like they go for a ways and then I then they have then they realize that they want to go back and get Mark from Mars. And so I, I said, like, OK, when they're about here, they want to start working toward getting back to Mars rather than going to Earth. So how do they change course? to get back to Mars. And I figured out how to do it with a gravity assist off of Earth and stuff like that. And this is another one of those things, kind of like the chemistry we were talking about earlier, where the stuff I did is fairly remedial stuff to the to ex, compared to what experts in the field do. It's, it's amazing. If you ever want to see some real awesome uh, slinging, which is what you call like orbital dynamics work, um, look at the path that the Rosetta probe took to get to the comet. Like so, oh, that's amazing! The, just, the Philae yeah. lander getting all the way there. Well, not not just the lander. I'm not just talking about Philae. Talk about Rosetta itself. Starting from Earth, it went. It did all sorts of stuff. It went around the sun once, got a gravity assist off of Earth, then went to Venus, got a gravity assist off that, then back to Earth, then went way out. And did, I mean, it just it bounced off so many things. It was just an, an an amazing feat of engineering to work out how to make it do all that stuff. And that's that's those guys are the real pros. So the the stuff that the stuff that I came up with looks cool, uh, hopefully, <laughs> to the reader because they don't know like how good the people who are good at this truly are. <laughs> Amidst all the action, like Mark has all of these adventures on Mars, you are also really honest about just the tedium. Like he has to wait hours for solar cells to recharge. He has to, you know, wait for potato plants to grow he has to wait and wait and wait a whole lot more uh and i was surprised at the honesty of that 
because when you're writing a book, I can't imagine your hero just sitting around as being the most compelling piece of information. Uh, why'd you include the just the tedium in there? Well, because there's no getting around it, just the amounts of times involved. I mean, you know, one of the major plot points is he's growing potatoes. Well, that, that takes a while. What's he doing in the meantime? I can't just throw catastrophe after catastrophe at him once he reaches a point of stability and he's like, okay, all the life support systems are working. I've got pre- everything's fine. <laughs> then, then I have to say that, okay, well, I have nothing better to do. And um, the important thing is to make sure that the reader knows that Mark is suffering from tedium and boredom without making the reader suffer from tedium and boredom. So rather than having this long, you know, page after page of like, oh, my boredom, oh, woe is me. I just say like, well, I watched I watched crappy 70 TV shows, 70s TV shows for 13 hours today. Yeah, he's not a fan of disco. I'm assuming that you're not a fan of disco either, because uh, he spends much of his time listening to 70s music. Okay, so truth be told, I do like disco. <laughs> <laughs> so, I don't know, I just, I kind of decided to torture him with that. Um, I don't know, I <laughs> I just thought it would be funny, because people, people have a weird vitriolic re- reaction to disco. Like any other music form, if you tell someone like, oh, I like hip-hop, they might be like, oh, I do like it, or no, I, I don't like it, I don't, you know, or I like classical, oh, well, I, I do too, or no, that's not my thing. But if you tell them you like disco, they're like, what is wrong with you? (laughs) (laughs) It's funny that that is one of the primary reactions. Yeah. And so it's a a good way to get kind of a vitriolic response from the reader, too, where this poor guy is like he wants to listen to music and all he's got is Commander Lewis's, you know, inexhaustible supply of disco. While most of the book happens you know, on Mars with Mark through his travelogues, there are many interludes that go back to Earth. And I was fascinated by the way you showed NASA. You showed uh, a a number of great, incredibly smart, dedicated people, but you also, you know, displayed the bureaucracy. Uh, you showed even failures uh, in, in terms of their uh, plans to to rescue Mark. Uh, I was curious: it was were NASA scientists involved in helping you put this together, or did you just sort of make that up? I made it up. Uh, um, I didn't have any any contacts with aerospace before uh, before the book came out. I do now. It's awesome. But um, <laughs> before the book came out, I, I didn't know anybody. I just did research. Bear in mind, I, I I've been a huge fan of the space program and you know manned and unmanned my whole life. So I I've watched like every documentary about space travel and NASA that I have been able to get my hands on. Um, so I have sort of a feeling of. Uh, I can't I can't claim to understand how things work over there but I've I've seen so many people interviewed I get kind of a feel for the for the uh, the culture a little bit. Also um when I was younger I worked at a national lab so it was like a, a research facility run by the federal government and so I projected kind of a lot of that like the kind of bureaucracy of that laboratory I said like well it's a big federal federally run group of scientists so it's similar right what has the reaction been from the space community to this both in the way they portrayed and and how realistic it it, the endeavor was oh they love it (laughs) they love it i mean they they're quick to like the people who actually know things are quick to point out okay well this in the book is scientifically inaccurate and this isn't plausible one of my favorite things is i've heard from yeah, you know, both so there's NASA and JPL both play a large part in the book, right? And one thing I've heard from both people at NASA and people at JPL was the most inaccurate thing in the book is the high level of cooperation shown between JPL and NASA. <laughs> <laughs> I guess you didn't get the bureaucracy quite right. <laughs> I guess not. Well, and of course, I mean, you take some huge multi-billion-dollar government organization. I'm sure it's a lot more complicated than I portrayed it. Like I had basically the director of NASA, um, the director of Mars operations, and then the uh, flight controller were the kind of main movers and shakers. So it was uh, Teddy, Venkat, and Mitch. And then I just kind of like, and there are other people, the the PR director and stuff like that. But as for the mission directive type of people, I just had the three big cheeses there um, in charge. I'm sure there are 
dozens, if not hundreds of people who all have input into a large complex process on a mission like this. And so I, I'm sure anybody who uh, is high up in NASA's bureaucracy will go like, wow, that was like mind bogglingly oversimplified. <laughs> but I, again, it's, it's all about the reader. It's all about making things fun for the reader. And if I can just say like, okay, this would be 50 people at NASA, but I'm going to create one character to represent them, then, then that's better for the reader. <laughs> Even amongst all the drama and Mark faces, you know, numerous challenges on Mars, uh, I was really surprised with the level of emotion in this book. I teared up more than a few times. Good. Um, reading through the, um, uh, reading it through. It, and I was, um, you know, really impressed with this notion that you sort of put across is once the Earth found out that we had left an astronaut on Mars, that there was a sort of unifying force that came together. Like CNN started a weekly show on how he was doing, uh, and people all came together uh, to watch this. Uh, and I sort of took that as a as your sort of take on what it would be to actually send somebody to Mars. Uh, is is that how you sort of hope it would be? Yeah, absolutely. If we actually, every I I I have. Uh... I, I have learned through observation that I have like much more faith in humanity than most of my friends do. <laughs> I, I really do believe that we are inherent. I mean, and this is, you know, overtly and blatantly like said over and over again in the book that basically um, we we kind of forget sometimes how awesome we are. Because you see like, oh, this guy murdered people or, oh, there was this terrorist attack or, oh, this, you know, you know, genocides in the history and all the horrible things people do. But you forget that the other 99.999% of humanity are inherently cooperative and want to help each other, which is why when someone gets lost hiking in the woods, a thousand people go looking for them. I mean, and that's just that's human nature. There's something fundamental about us versus nature where we're like, okay. So a, 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 a human being is in trouble, therefore all the rest of us want to help him. That's why, you know, there's a, a tsunami a tsunami that destroys an area you've never even heard of. Suddenly, that's all you care about. Is there anything I can do, you know? So are you hopeful that a manned mission to Mars is actually going to happen? Oh, sure. I, I, uh, I believe it will definitely happen. The only question is, will it happen in our lifetimes or will it be much later on? See, the thing is... Um, Here's my take on it. Uh, human beings have an inherent desire to go wander around and look at stuff. I mean, so the, <laughs> there are people who live like, you know, at the base camp of Everest. There are people who live out in the out in the woods in the middle of Alaska. And there people will go wherever they kind of feel like going. All they need is access to it. Eventually, our technology will reach the point where it's where it doesn't cost that much to go into space, where you could go to the moon for a million bucks or something like that. And we will either invent this technology in the short term specifically to encourage space travel, or we will accidentally invent it in the long term while working on other things. Like someone will be working on a new, more efficient aircraft engine and say like, oh, this could be applied to rocketry or something like that. But one way or another, the price will be driven down eventually. It's inevitable. And once that happens, people will start heading out to the moon and Mars and beyond. Do you think works like yours are important in that process to remind people of uh, that aspect of our humanity, that we can, in, in quick order, make these trips? Or do you see this as like an entertainment blip? No, definitely just a, an entertainment blip. I, I, think, I, I, I don't think, um, you know... Eh, I don't know. Entertainment in general uh, affects society's priorities, I suppose. But for the most part, I mean, certainly the purpose, uh, the reason I wrote the book was just to entertain. I didn't have anything beyond that. I wasn't trying to push an ideology or anything. Um, it, it, if it did have an effect, it would be in the same way that you voting has an effect. It's like one small part of lots and lots of other things. You know what I mean? Well, here I disagree with you because okay. <laughs> I I am not a huge uh, I've never been a huge space geek. I've always been supportive of NASA, but I have to say after reading this book, after seeing sort of a human story projected that had some realism to it, um and it's largely because of the science, I felt more engaged with us going to Mars uh emotionally and intellectually than I've ever have in my life. 
Well, uh, great. I'm glad it had that effect. <laughs> <laughs> but it wasn't the intention. So no, I just, the intention I, was just anything I write, just not just The Martian, but anything you ever see that I've written, the sole purpose is just I want you to read it, I want you to enjoy it, and when you're done, I want you to go like, huh, that was cool. That That's my only goal. <laughs> so when it comes to even including the science, you didn't include it from this perspective of hoping to see more uh, novels include uh, accurate science in their work. You just wanted – it's just how you write? Well, uh, interesting. I mean, that is that is just how I decided to write this one. Um, I would love to see more novels with accurate science in them, but it wasn't like um, – writing The Martian was not my attempt to bring that about. <laughs> it was it just, just happened kind of me, to be the way. It's just kind of me, I guess. You write You write a book that you think you would enjoy reading, right? And were you – surprised at the response to this book we we should actually uh, back up for a second and talk about the process yeah this book actually got published um you didn't have a publisher when this released so how did this book get out there sure i'll tell you the the tale um so first off you should know that earlier and i've always wanted to be a writer and earlier in my life like long ago well in in the in the misty forgotten era of the 1990s I took a I took three years off of work and tried to break into um, becoming a professional author. I um, I wrote a book. I tried to get it published and couldn't. I couldn't get an agent. Couldn't get a publisher interested. It's the the standard story. This was not The Martian. This was a different book. The so it's the same it's the same experience most writers have, right? So after three years, I decided. Well, I gave it a try. I don't have to wonder you know, what if anymore, and then I'll go back to work as a computer programmer. So I did that. And then I started writing on the side for fun. As the internet became more and more popular, I had an avenue for posting things. So I could say like, oh, I wrote this short story, post it online. I wrote this thing, post it online. Um, around 2009, I want to say, yeah, 2009, I started writing The Martian. And it was just a serial story that I was posting to my website in chapters. So I wrote chapter one, posted it, wrote chapter two, posted it, and so on. I had about 3,000 regular readers at the time that had accumulated over 10 years of writing short fiction and comics and other things. And so I had this core reader base. Now, all my stuff had been kind of scientific or at least geeky-minded. Like I had a webcomic about a couple of mad scientists, I had I, stuff like that. So my readers were very scientifically-minded people, like really... Um, intelligent and usually very well educated, stuff like that. So when I was writing The Martian, I was really writing it for them. I was writing it for who I knew were a bunch of like just not not a, a much higher percentage of really scientifically minded people than the general population. And and so that's all I thought. I thought that's the only audience it would be. I thought like this is for a a very very niche audience. Anyway, so I wrote it. They enjoyed it. Um, I finally, I, I finished it. I posted the last chapter and I figured, okay, I'm done uh, on, on to the next story. And I started getting emails from people saying like, Hey, I'm really enjoying the Martian, but I hate reading it in a website. Can you, can you make an e-reader version so I can download it onto my e-reader? So I, I figured out how to do that. And I posted that to my site and said like, okay, done. Anyway, back to work on this new story. And they're like, well, you know, I like, I like that there's an e-reader version, but I don't know. I'm not very technically savvy. I don't know how to download an e-reader, like an EPUB file from the internet and get it onto my e-reader. Like, I just don't know how to do it. Can you just put it on Kindle so I can tap a, you know, tap a button and boom, it's it's on my e-reader. So I figured out how to do that. It's really easy. Uh, Kindle has this thing called KDP, Kindle Direct Publishing. Um, uh, and you, you just put your story up and they get a percentage of the of the price. It doesn't cost you anything up front. Um, but they do insist that you charge at least 99 cents. You can't charge less than that because they want to make money. So I, I did that and I said, all right, everybody. Okay. Now you can either download it. You can either read it for free on my website or you can download it for free and put it on your e-reader, or you can pay a buck to have Amazon put it on your e-reader for you. And more people paid the buck than any, than either of the other options, like by far. Wow. Yeah. Because wow. It, yeah, it, that shows like how, how deep into their market Amazon reaches, right? It shows like this, because now what had happened was the story was no longer just like, just, you know, this little thing for me and my 3000 readers. It was now out to anybody who was interested and they were. 
And that did surprise me. It was very surprising to me how many people liked it because I thought that I'd, I'd written it just for, I thought that I'd basically abandoned everyone other than this, this specific category of readers. Anyway, it made it. So did it rocket up the charts and then more people found it? Yeah. And that's what happened. It snowballed. Um, I did nothing to market it. I, I just posted it there and then just kind of walked away. Um, it started selling really well. It made its way up to the top sellers charts and then uh, made it up to like number one in sci-fi and stuff. Then that really starts to snowball because, you know, someone's like, oh, I want to read a sci-fi book. What are the top 10, you know, e you know, e-reader e or Kindle books? Okay, I'll take this one. And then I imagine publishers calling are, are not far behind that. Yeah, that's what happened. Then uh, what I, uh, uh, Random House or Crown, which is an imprint of Random House, uh, an editor there named Julian Pavia, uh, read it and he liked it. And he said like, huh, I think we might want to offer this guy a print deal. I want to get the opinion of a colleague of mine though, who's outside of, who's, who doesn't work for Random House, uh, a guy named David Fugate, who was a literary agent, gave it to David and said, what do you think of this story? I was thinking about offering this guy a publishing deal. And David read it and said like, I like it. I think you should offer him a publishing deal. I'm going to go become his agent. And so he, he became, <laughs> he became my agent. And uh, so after three so years, he turned around and started negotiating. And then turned around you. and said, "So, what are you going to pay for?" Yeah, <laughs> but that's fine. That's what Julian had expected. Yeah, Julian didn't want to talk to me raw. He wanted to make sure I had an agent. So it's not a, there's not as much nefarious stuff going on as, as it seemed. But um, yeah, and so after three years of not being able to get an agent or get any interest at all, an agent comes to me and says, "Like, you want an agent?" I'm like, sure. And he's like, great. Random House wants to print your book. <laughs> I'm like, great. And then that same. Uh, right around the same time, 20th Century Fox came for the movie rights. And um, so... So we should note that the movie has been optioned and and now Rig Ridley Scott is dir uh, directing this movie and it's due out at the end of uh, 2015. Right. Uh, November 25th, 2015 is the release date. They're filming it right now. Do you have any idea how they're going to represent the science in the movie? Uh, yeah, I've seen the screenplay. Uh, they th So... My role in the movie is just to cash the check. Like that—that's my—that's my only responsibility. But they—they, they, yeah, they don't have to listen to anything I say or anything. But they choose to sometimes, and they—they they sent me the screenplay to get my feedback and stuff like that. So I've seen it, and I'm—I'm I'm very happy with it. I can't talk about it too much, you know. But I can tell you that I'm—that I'm—I'm very pleased with the the screenplay. I think Drew Goddard did a great job. He's the—he's the guy who wrote the screenplay. I so I have to say I it. I'm impressed. I'm thoroughly impressed that this is essentially your first novel and this is your debut. And, and, uh, are we going to be able to look forward to more, uh, science being incorporated to your future works? Sure. Absolutely. Um, though, um, my, then the book I'm working on now, which should come out in maybe early 2016 is more of a traditional sci-fi. It's got, you know, aliens and faster than light travel and telepathy, but I, I, <laughs> what I do is I say, like, here's the place we're going to break physics, and then everything else will be based on that. You know, so there I actually spent just <laughs> it's funny. I spent the last uh, three or four days carefully working out all the physics related to FTL travel in for this next for for this next book. So I've got I've got my one thing that breaks the rules and then everything else based on that. Maybe I don't know much about faster than light travel, but I imagine there's a lot of physics you're breaking. <laughs> uh, well, there's there's w one thing I'm doing where I'm breaking the rules. <laughs> oh. Well, we'll have to look forward to that. Um, there's a lot of relativistic uh, physics in what I'm up to now. I won't I won't be able to bring that across to the reader. I'll just have to say like, here's how things work, and I might even have an appendix <laughs> in the back of the book. It's like, okay, settle in. <laughs> I'm going to tell you about gamma. <laughs> Well, we're I was I'm thrilled to have you on Inquiring Minds. I have to say one thing that I really hope uh becomes an outcome of this book is uh after MacGyver in the eighties, everyone talked about MacGyvering stuff. Yeah. I hope it becomes that we start talking about Mark Watney stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds great. Yeah. That, somebody was saying like uh, somebody sent me like I I, w I wouldn't even be called a fanfic. It was just a couple of paragraphs of text, but it's just about like Mark Watney comes home and his parents hug him and stuff like that. And and like it turns out his dad is MacGyver. <laughs> <laughs> Do, did you ever think about doing a prologue? The the book actually ends um, uh, before they get home. You mean like an epilogue or? 
Yeah, yeah, an epilogue, sorry. Yeah. Um, so originally in the uh, E version of the book, it does have a scene where he's back on Earth. But the scene was just kind of clunky, and it was a weird note to end the book on. So I ditched it in favor of just having sort of a denouement at the end of uh, after he gets rescued. Also, I've never been a big fan of books that drag on and on after the climax. You know, it's like, okay, so the 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 main plot has been resolved. It's like, okay, you may now exit the theater. <laughs> it's like we're done here, and it's always better to leave a reader wanting more than leave them thinking like, boy, I tried to plod through those last ten pages. You know, so. Uh, if it, if it causes you to speculate and wonder how his trip home went and stuff like that, then then that's pretty good. Although there's not enough there for a sequel, unfortunately. <laughs> well, hopefully Mark Watney shows up somewhere else in our lifetime. I, I would love to. If if I can ever come up with some way to sequel that, I would I would love to. It was awesome writing Watney. I just love writing the guy. But sadly, it's like there's just no possible way to get him into trouble again. <laughs> and if he's not in trouble, it's not as interesting a story, you know. On the lecture circuit, he has all sorts of trouble getting to and from airports. Yes, his um, hotel loses track of his reservation. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, Andy Weir, thank you so much for joining us on Inquiring Minds. Thanks for having me. Great interview, Kishore. I have to say there are a couple times where I actually laughed out loud, um, which is rare for me when I'm listening to something uh, on my phone, which was which is how I was listening in this case. And I, I, one of the things I really liked was how dedicated he was to getting the science right. I mean, he like wrote computer programs to figure out solutions to his problems. And he didn't just go and, you know, ask an astrophysicist, as I think some writers do. They just go and, you know, have a conversation over a glass of wine with some scientist and they try to get things right. I mean, he really tried to figure it out on his own. And I, I really respect him for that. I think that he had a better appreciation for what it took to get to Mars because of how much time of his own time and effort that he put into it. Because I think when you write a software package to calculate orbital trajectories, you're pretty invested in those orbital trajectories getting right. And uh, one thing uh, I've heard that Andy is doing is that because he had everything so rigorously figured out, you could actually go through the book and sort of figure out when the mission launched and when they return, when they sort of finish, if you will. And so I think he's going to run a contest to see if somebody can actually do the math and report back to him. Oh, cool. I also love the fact that, you know, he's he's got these kind of practical solutions to these difficult problems. You know, how do you eat on Mars? How do you turn the soil in or how to, you know, the ground into soil and so forth. Um, and, you know, I, I loved how he had made that one mistake, right? In terms of one of his reactions, it was just going to generate too much heat for it to be plausible. But he already had solutions that he would have wanted to write in. And so it, it was really delightful to hear that. I hope we see more in this genre of what's called hard science fiction, where we see science realism blended into it. Because uh, I think what Andy proved, I mean, this book rose to the bestseller list on Amazon, is, is that there is a market for this, that there is a way to write this science realism in the story and not detract from a narrative. And there's a community out there that really enjoys it. And I think it added a lot to the environment of this story. So I hope we see more emergence of that. Uh, because it's been a, a couple decades since we saw a lot of hard science fiction novels really take hold of the science fiction mainstream. And despite the fact that there are still, you know, people that believe things like that vaccines cause autism and so forth, it seems to me that at least the general public seems to be more science literate than even five or 10 years ago. And that seems to be the trend. It, it's just an observation I'm making. I don't have data to back it up. Uh, but that's encouraging to me. And I think, I hope it encourages publishers too not to take all the science out of a book, uh, but yet, you know, to, to celebrate the fact that a book is scientifically accurate. I think the real moment for this book is it's being translated into a movie with Ridley Scott. It'll be really interesting to see how the science shines through in this movie. We've seen Interstellar and Gravity to a certain extent kind of get the science right. It was sort of a, a side star of it. We know it's even going to be further in front here. And this uh, movie's slated to release on... Uh, at Thanksgiving. This is a prime time slot. They're putting a lot of energy behind this. So uh, I really am um, 
uh, optimistic that this is going to be an incredible year for The Martian. And who knows, maybe The Martian will win him an Oscar. (laughs) So that's it for another episode, and I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. You can find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show, on Facebook at Slash Inquiring Minds Podcast, and you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, or anything else you'd like to inquiringminds at climatedesk.org. And once again, this episode is sponsored by The Great Courses. The Great Courses brings the world's greatest professors to your fingertips. With over 500 courses on science, history, philosophy, fine arts, and more, The Great Courses are available on digital download and streaming or DVD and CD. Best of all, you can listen to or watch The Great Courses at your own pace without the pressure of homework or exams. And now for limited time only, The Great Courses is giving our listeners an offer of 80% off the original price of The Science of Mindfulness, a research-based path to well-being. Go to thegreatcourses.com slash inquiringminds to find out more. That's thegreatcourses.com slash inquiringminds. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac in cooperation with The Climate Desk, a journalistic collaboration in partnership with The Atlantic, the Center for Investigative Reporting, The Guardian, Grist, Mother Jones, Slate, Wired, and the Huffington Post. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Chien. And we're your hosts. I'm Indre Viscontis. And I'm Kishore Hari. See you next week. <laughs>